China Econ Talk is hitting the road. I'll be doing my first live show September 19th. That's Thursday at 6 p.m. at the Carnegie Endowment. There I'll be talking with Martin Rassner about 5G and rare earths. Do drop by either there or afterwards around 7, 7.30 at Mission DuPont for a China Econ Talk happy hour. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. ChinaEconTalk.substack.com. It's my newsletter. I've told you about it before. Now go sign up. In Federalist 10, James Madison, who holds a special place in my heart because I've acted him on stage, once wrote that, quote, It is in vain to say that enlightened statesmen will be able to adjust clashing economic interests and render them all subservient to the public good. And boy, was he right. Over American history, trades policy stands out as a field of fierce political combat. So what are the principles that drive American trade policy and what lessons from history can we draw on to understand today's trade fights? To discuss, we have on today Dartmouth professor Doug Irwin, author of the 700 page history of American trade policy from independence to the present day. Doug, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So you mentioned in your acknowledgments that you uh, thank your wife for putting up with your interest in such an arcane field of economics. So um, maybe first off, when you guys were dating or at some point, uh, you probably gave her a pitch as to why you actually care about trade policy and why it's interesting. Maybe talk a little bit about perhaps how that pitch has changed over the course of your career. Well, there's the personal level and then there's the professional level, I guess. So I guess the, the secret is in terms of my relationship with my wife, I married an economist. So it didn't take all that much uh, for her to be persuaded that trade is cheating, man. It is cheating a bit. Yeah. We have a lot to talk about. She is a macroeconomist, however, and she doesn't really think micro is all that important or interesting. But even she, I think uh, today grudgingly would uh, admit that trade policy is important. And what's sort of amazing about the present era is that with President Trump and all the headlines about trade, one really doesn't have to motivate the idea that trade policy is important and interesting for the world economy. But actually, if you go back 10 years ago or so, That wasn't the case. There was a a period in my career when trade policy was sort of a sleepy backwater of economics. Uh, Tariffs were low and stable. Countries weren't using trade policy to achieve any sort of particular objective. Um, The world seemed to be moving in a liberalizing direction. And there wasn't much to say. Uh, And now we have all these uh, uh, trade policy experiments with tariffs going up on China and on steel and other things. Economists are writing tons of paper on these things. Uh, Obviously, it's making the front page news above the fold even in terms of some of the macroeconomic impacts of these tariffs. So um, it's sort of, uh, you know, disheartening in a way, but also uh, if for a trade economist, these are really interesting times. Just just from a drama perspective, how would you compare this to fights over monetary policy throughout history? Well, there's be another great book to be written about uh, sort of the politics of monetary policy from the very beginning. I'd say we're at a, sort of a, a local peak in terms of uh, interest and dissension over trade policy in terms of what uh, the President Trump has uh, been doing. Now, as you know, with the book, I cover you know more than 200 years of U.S. history. And there was this period in the late 1820s when uh, literally the U.S. was th- threatening to uh, sort of uh, break apart over the issue of tariff policy, uh, you know, objected to the high tariffs that were being imposed uh, because the North sort of controlled the political process. So I don't think we're at the uh, stage of breaking up the United States over trade policy, but um, it's pretty uh, intense at the moment in terms of the debates going on about trade policy. I imagine that was one of your uh, favorite sections to write, but I'm curious where, you know, how, how you how you made it through the in, the entire sweep. Were there, some, were there some low points as well as high points? Yeah, I guess the uh, thing is I didn't set out to write this book or anything. It's not like I had this conception, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago, oh, I I want to write a book from the very beginning to the very end of trade policy and just tell the whole story. I sort of backed into it. Um, I started writing papers on trade policy in the Great Depression, uh, and I found it very interesting. It was a lot of fun, and not too many people were working in that area at the time. Um, And so I said, well, let me go back a little bit further in time. How, How did we get to the Great Depression period? And slowly, I sort of moved backward and forward from the 1930s, and uh, after a few years, realized that I had sort of covered some of the big events in terms of the history of trade policy, and maybe I should put it all together in a book and uh, uh, cover in some of the gaps and uh, fill in some of the holes. So I sort of, once again, it sort of uh, came about, I wouldn't say accidentally, but sort of uh, a haphazard way. 
uh, when I ultimately decide to write the book. And of course, some periods are more interesting than others. You know, the late 19th century, um, from say after the Civil War up to uh, uh, World War One, it's a pretty stable period. There are a lot of forgettable presidents, um, a lot of gnashing about trade policy, <laughs> but not a lot of action, a lot of sort of status quo bias, if you will. But there's a cross of gold. Oh, that's true. Yes. Uh, more monetary policy than uh, trade policy per se, but they're, of course, they're related to some extent. Uh, let's see. But So that was sort of one of the, I guess, more slower periods. But it's also a very interesting period, not so much because of the trade politics of the period, but because of the debates over what the impact of trade policy was in terms of fostering U.S. economic growth and industrialization. So that's really the big debate in the late 19th century, not so much big fights over whether tariffs should go up or down a little bit. I still want to go even further back. So let's start quickly the dynamics of pre-Civil War trade policy and why you argue that it's dominated of concerns around revenue raising. Right. So actually, uh, you know, you're sort of asking uh, what were the more interesting and less interesting parts of the book. I thought, think the earlier parts are really interesting because one of the things I learned is that we didn't. One of the major reasons why we have the U.S. Constitution, one of the motivations for having the Constitutional Convention, was to solve a policy problem of trade policy. That is, uh, when we got our independence, we had the Articles of Confederation, which didn't endow the National Congress with the power to tax anything, um, and yet the federal government or the national government need to spend money on defense and on paying foreign debts and what have you. The Constitutional Convention was sort of to solve that problem of giving the government the power to tax. And by sort of uh, unanimous consensus, the idea was, well, we're not going to have income taxes. We're not going to have sales taxes. You might have heard of the Whiskey Rebellion. Sales taxes didn't work out so well. Uh, They were resisted by the American (laughs) public. But import tariffs are sort of this anonymous way of taxing goods as they came into the U.S. economy. Um, And we're, uh, I wouldn't say dependent on trade, but we relied on trade quite a bit. We import a lot of goods that we couldn't produce here. They came into, you know, half a dozen or a dozen ports on the East Coast, so that's sort of easily taxed. Uh, the tax is embedded in the price of the product that the consumer pays. And so everyone sort of agreed that to raise revenue for the federal government, uh, import tariffs are going to be the way to do it. And so with the Constitution, it's sort of, and the first debates over what we want to achieve with our trade policy, you know, the U.S. is sort of starting out on its own as an independent country in th- terms of thinking about what its trade policy ought to be and what principles ought to be underlying it. So how is this history relevant today? Well, (laughs) you would think that it wouldn't be so much, but it is in two senses, very much directly to the uh, debates that the Trump administration has unleashed. First of all, under the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, I believe, um, Congress is empowered with the authority to levy taxes on imports. What's happened uh, in the late 20th century is uh, Congress delegated a lot of those powers to the president. Now the president, President Trump, uh, has really uh, seized upon this. Uh, to impose and justify the imposition of tariffs that he's done without Congress's consent. And so uh, there is a discussion today, at least, about the role of uh, Congress in trade policy and the the Constitution. So that's how one way in which it's uh, played in uh, to debates today. The other is that, um, you know, after the introduction of the income tax in 1913, the share of federal government revenue coming from the tariff just plummeted to you know, trivial amounts. I think maybe 1% or less than 1% of U.S. government revenue today comes from the tariff. But uh, one of the selling points that the president has sort of made in uh, talking about his tariffs um, is that they're raising a lot of revenue. So he tweets a lot about how our coffers are being filled with millions, if not billions of dollars from uh, that other countries are paying Uh, for the privilege of uh, sending their their goods to the U.S. And so he's sort of raised revenue as a reason or a justification for imposing tariffs today. And so that that idea of revenue has come back into play as well. I mean, one of the things that I've sort of got about in terms of uh, looking at more than 200 years of U.S. trade policy history is that there's a lot of uh, recycling of arguments, a lot of uh, reinventing the wheel, um, a lot of uh, debates that uh, take place today that took place, you know, 50, 100, 200 years ago. So there are some really underlying themes and uh, uh, issues that come up with trade policy that just uh, are sort of um, always present with us. Sure. Trump certainly taking cues from mercantilist British empire inspired economics. Let's now turn to the uh, restriction phase, which you argue was the first fundamental shift in uh, U.S. policy. Right. So one of the themes of the book, uh, I guess two themes of the book that I'll sort of highlight to sort of uh, introduce this topic is that um, when we ask what the question, what is the motivation or what is the goal or what is the federal government trying to achieve in levying tariffs on imports? 
um, I have what I call the three R's, revenue, restriction, and reciprocity. So revenue is the idea is that if we tax foreign imports, uh, that raises money for the federal government. Um, pretty straightforward. Uh, the second one, restriction is, well, we are imposing tariffs on imports, not so much for revenue, but we just want to keep those imports out to restrict those imports so that we create jobs and import competing industries and strengthen the American economy. So obviously that argument has been very potent and has been around for a long time. And the Trump administration also points to that, saying we're helping revitalize the steel industry, um, et cetera. And, and uh, one hears that uh, in past decades as well. Then the last one, reciprocity, which we'll get to a little bit later, is that uh, you're imposing tariffs or you're using your trade policy to uh, negotiate with other countries to reduce their barriers. And so you reach these uh, agreements to uh, reduce trade barriers and increase uh, bilateral trade or multilateral trade, as the case may be. So you mentioned the transition from uh, uh, revenue to restriction. So this took place in the 1860s. And uh, here's where sort of one of the second themes of the book is, is that when we're trying to determine what phase we're in, revenue restriction or reciprocity, or we're trying to determine who's really calling the shots in terms of trade policy, um, it comes down to regional politics and which regions of the country either benefit from trade or benefit from trade barriers, and which regions of the country have the most political power in the Congress and in the federal government. And so the reason why in the 1860s we shifted from reciprocity, pardon me, uh, revenue to reciprocity is that uh, prior to the Civil War, the South was politically dominant in the United States. Um, not at all times, but uh, they, they were very powerful, uh, particularly in the, in the Senate. Um, and the South, uh, that's the region of the country that was responsible for most of U.S. exports at the time. Uh, cotton in particular was a big one, but also tobacco, indigo, uh, and some other uh, commodities as well. Um, and so if the South is sort of most politically powerful and uh, they get to dictate uh, to the, the nation what the trade policies will be of the United States, they're going to be relatively open. They want relatively low tariffs to keep exports up. So what happens with the Civil War, it's uh, a reorientation or a redirection of, of political power in the United States. Um, a realignment of political power in the United States. That's when the North really becomes to, uh, dominant, uh, not just because the South stepped out of Congress when they tried to secede during the Civil War, but after the war, when the South came back in, they were much less politically powerful than they had been. So the North, that's where uh, import competing manufacturing industries had uh, arisen in the first half of the uh, 19th century. And so they wanted trade restriction. They wanted res uh, restriction as U.S. trade policy. And so they use their political power from 1860 uh, up till World War One and after to uh, establish high tariffs as sort of the trade policy regime in the United States. Doug, talk a little bit about log rolling. So what was it and what sort of impact did it have on U.S. trade policy? So log rolling is a, a political science term for talking about how uh, votes take place in Congress. And uh, political scientists and economists have used it to sort of um, talk about how this uh, this regime of high tariffs got uh, maintained in, in place in Congress for so many years in the uh, uh, late 19th century and early 20th century. So basically, it relies on uh, vote trading among members of Congress to uh, keep tariffs high. So let's say you're from the state of Florida. Now, Florida doesn't produce steel, but uh, Pennsylvania does. And so the senators and representatives in Pennsylvania really want high tariffs on imported steel. But most states don't produce steel. So how, why would Congress ever vote for high prices or high tariffs on steel? Well, members of the Florida delegation, they, they care about sugar. They want to keep out sugar imports. And uh, maybe in uh, North Carolina, there's, uh, or West Virginia say there's coal and we, uh, they want to keep out coal. So various states' delegations will sort of get together and say, I'll vote for your steel tariff if you vote for my sugar tariff. Um, and so that this vote trading, known as log rolling, uh, sort of gives rise to uh, interlocking uh, coalition that makes it very difficult to uh, uh, push for lower tariffs um, because uh, while uh, most states might like lower tariffs on steel, they don't want lower tariffs on their own goods and, uh, and they've collaborated or gotten together to uh, keep these tariffs high. So one reason why in the late 19th century, even when the Democrats who were, came largely from the South had uh, almost zero success in reducing tariffs in the late 19th century, or early 20th century is that um, they just had the face these log uh, rolling coalitions in Congress that are very, very difficult to defeat. 
my favorite part about trade history is we're not just talking about the big, you know, steel, indigo, tobacco types of goods. We're also going way down into the weeds. We've got bird cages, we've got fur hats, we've got crayons. It just keeps going and going because the these the interests are extraordinarily local and you can, you know, have individual line items for all these different um, different types of goods. Yeah. So when Congress throughout the 19th century and well into the 20th century, whenever they considered a tariff bill, um, you know, it consisted of, uh, I think, up to 3,000 lines uh, by the 1930s, uh, individual tariff lines on individual products. And behind each of those products, there's some producers located in some states who are going to let their representatives and senators know that they really uh, value those high tariffs. Um, and so you get members of Congress defending and debating uh, the clothespin tariff, the tomato tariff, um, the, the felt skirt tariff. <laughs> and uh, by the time you know of the smooth holly tariff in 1930, uh, it was taking uh, weeks and weeks and weeks, if not and months, in fact, to get through the Senate, where they would literally have roll call votes on each of these individual tariff lines, um, sometimes more than once. Uh, so it, it does get into the nitty gritty. I love how uh, you have some quotes from senators and, and representatives talking about how basically this is the worst part of their job. And they were ha- they were happy to end up seeing it go just because just so they could spend time doing other things. Um, so one, you mentioned the smooth holly tariffs. Let's uh, please. No, I was just going to add. Uh, that's one reason why Congress ultimately decided to delegate uh, tariff authority to the president is that they didn't want to deal with uh, the tomato tariff and the clothespin tariff. Uh, It was just taking up an enormous amount of legislative time. And of course, uh, Washington would be besieged by uh, special interest groups whenever Congress decided to take up the tariff. And so they said, you know, we have much more interesting and important issues to deal with um, than fighting these sort of micro battles over this and that. So uh, we're just going to uh, deal with, uh, uh, give this to the president uh, in some sense. Sure. So before we get to that, you mentioned the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, perhaps the most famous tariffs in world history. So uh, what were they and why did folks think they were a good idea at the time? Yeah. So the Smoot-Hawley tariff was passed by uh, Congress in uh, June of 1930 and then signed by President Hoover. And it's been infamous because, uh, first of all, I think the name is sort of uh, slick, Smoot and Hawley. It's not a regular term. It sort of has a nice, uh, I guess, cadence to it. It sort of was a very ill-timed tariff in the sense that it occurred right as the world economy was slipping into the Great Depression. Now, when it was originally uh, proposed in the late 1920s, uh, the U.S. economy was doing very well. We were at, uh, close to full employment. The stock market was booming. Industrial production was growing. The economy seemed to be doing well. But uh, it was introduced in Congress uh, in 1928, 1929, and the idea behind it was, well, the farm sector is lagging. The farm sector isn't doing so well. Um, it, there were dislocations uh, coming as a result of World War One and uh, overproduction and uh, overinvestment in land. And uh, so we have to help farmers uh, cope with uh, imports. We have to raise their prices in some way. Uh, in fact, uh, Congress had twice passed price supports in the late 1920s. Uh, President uh, Calvin Coolidge uh, vetoed both of those pieces of legislation. So in other words, Congress was groping for some way to help out rural America, some way to help out farmers. Price support seemed to be the obvious way of doing it, but the president didn't want that. Um, and so they said, well, maybe the tariff is sort of the second best way of, uh, of dealing with the issue. Even though uh, I go through the book, it, it really wouldn't have helped out farmers that much because most big farmers were uh, big exporters, not uh, facing foreign competition, not facing imports. But what, that, here's where the term log rolling comes in as well. Uh, even though it was uh, motivated originally to help out the farm sector and agriculture, once you start talking about the tariff in Congress, uh, then, uh, you know, the fishbowl industry and the uh, uh, tomato producers and steel producers, they start coming out of the woodwork and saying, well, if you're going to raise those tariffs, you might as well raise ours, too. Uh, we could always benefit from uh, capturing a little bit more market share by keeping out foreign competition. And so by the time it sort of passed, um, it was a, a, an almost across the board tariff increase. The U.S. had uh, the stock market crash in late 1929. So the world economy was becoming increasingly fragile. Congress really didn't think about uh, foreign ramifications in terms of foreign retaliation. And so what ultimately happened is, is that other countries did retaliate against the U.S. That hurt our exports. World trade began to contract. That exacerbated the Great Depression, which we had already sort of uh, begun to slide into. Um, And it just became sort of this trade policy disaster that uh, the U.S. spent about really 20 or 30 years trying to pull our way out of this. 
it wasn't just that other countries raised their tariffs against our products, it's they also formed these trade blocks that discriminated against the US. In particular, uh, the British Imperial Preference Scheme, which included Britain, Canada, and others, which were big markets for US produce, now uh, the US faced not just higher tariffs, but discriminatory tariffs uh, in those markets. So Smoot-Hawley, uh, it was really sort of this unnecessary, unwise piece of legislation, very ill-timed, um, and created big problems for a long time uh, for US trade policy. Interestingly, you have a quote in your new foreign affairs piece talking about US-China trade relations. And there's a quote from Navarro saying, man, there's no way these guys are going to retaliate. We're the biggest um, importer in the world. They're, they're, everyone's going to want to keep selling stuff to us. Little did he know, had he read your book and, and understood the reactions of the Smoot-Hawley in the Smoot-Hawley period, perhaps he would have uh, thought a little harder about the, the international reaction. There's actually absolutely a parallel there because I Congress, uh, some Democrats in Congress said, well, you know, we ought to really think about this carefully and not just think about domestic interests, but our export interests and other countries might retaliate. And basically the reaction of most members of Congress, Republicans at the time was, nah, we don't have to worry about that. You know, other countries, you know, this is a domestic piece of legislation. It doesn't really concern other countries. They're not going to retaliate. And of course uh, they did. So that seems to be one theme is that uh, some policymakers or uh, pol trade uh, policy thinkers will sort of understate or under play the idea that other countries will retaliate against us. Yeah, I mean, it's 1930. Who's reading the telegrams? Like, you know, it's, it comes in a few days late. They'll Something else will, yeah, will so come through the wire. Sometimes these groups are called economic nationalists. So that's what uh, Peter Navarro might call himself. But what they don't realize is that they're economic nationalists in other countries, too. So, uh, you know, if we aggrieve other countries, uh, hurt their exports, um, they don't don't just say, oh, well, I guess there's nothing we can do about that. You know, they get upset too and they're nationalists. And so they say we have to strike back against uh, the Americans who, uh, who cut out our markets. And the reason why the Europeans were particularly concerned about this at the time in the late 1920s, early 1930s is they were trying to repay their war debts to the United States as a result of World War I. So they need to run trade surpluses uh, with the U.S. And uh, their ability to do so was hurt by uh, the tariffs that we imposed. And so uh, there was this financial dimension, too, to what was going on at that time. All right. So FDR comes in and the whole trajectory starts to shift. Uh, why does this happen? Yeah. So here's another one of these uh, trade policy pivot points, one could call them. So the first one we, we talked about was the shift from revenue to restriction with the Civil War and the realignment in American politics, shifting political power to the North. Uh, well, we have in the 1932 election another um, political realignment towards the Democrats uh, shifting a little bit more towards the south, although FDR's coalition also included uh, big parts of uh, the urban areas in the north. But it was much more, uh, the political party of the Democrats at the time was much more in favor of freer trade. That's where uh, the Democrats in the south, uh, once again, were still uh, sort of representing export-oriented industries. Um, urban areas were, uh, you know, wanted, uh, cheap imports for food and other things. Um, and so, uh, so the, the Political system sort of shifted back towards uh, freer trade, but uh, it wasn't a shift towards um, just you know abolishing Smoot-Hawley. So, in the past, when the Democrats had taken over, uh, the few times in the late 19th century, they tried to pass bills just reducing tariffs. So the Republicans would try to push tariffs up, the Democrats would try to push them down. But what the, the FDR realized at the time was, um, first of all, we're in a depression. Um, a unilateral tariff reduction is not going to uh, work well politically, and it's not even going to help us out that much economically, because what's happened as a result of Smoot-Hawley is other countries have raised their tariffs against us. They've retaliated against us. And so we have to get rid of that uh, discrimination. We have to get rid of those foreign tariffs. So the way we're going to do so is we're going to bargain. We're going to say, we'll, we will reduce our tariffs on your goods uh, if you reduce your tariffs on our goods and get rid of the discrimination. And so uh, that's why FDR didn't say we're going to just slash or unilaterally cut tariffs. We're going to start bargaining. And that's this uh, introduction of this last or third phase of uh, U.S. trade policy, the third R, if you will, reciprocity, uh, where you know, we're going to negotiate with other countries. And so the Roosevelt administration um, pushed for this piece of legislation in 1934 called the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act which empowered the president to undertake those trade negotiating activities. And that's sort of where we are. That's sort of the regime we're in today, where Congress no longer sets the tariff rates themselves. They don't pass these long, complicated tariff bills with uh, individual tariff lines. They sort of uh, rely on the president to handle trade policy within some circumscribed limits, of course. 
And so the president is really sort of the main trade policy actor today. And so that's where we've been since uh, the 1930s. Did you dig at all into the intellectual history of the reciprocal trade agreements, the whole idea of this? Because it, it does seem like a very much like a change in uh, a change in paradigm as opposed to just trying to uh, plug away at these uh, existing edifices. Right. Uh, certainly there was discussion in the progressive era about, um, you know, we, the, Congress is slow uh, and uh, sort of doesn't really think about the, the national interest all the time, but, but special interests. And so we need to empower a very strong, quick uh, acting uh, executive. Uh, and we need these expert administrative agencies to handle our, our uh, you know, policy, whether it's uh, the creation of the Food and Drug Administration <clears throat> or other uh, agencies like that. Um, so there was this idea that, you know, we wanted to create this impartial, non-political tariff board that would sort of adjudicate uh, tariff issues. That didn't work out so well. The idea had been floating around for some time that, you know, Congress is really not the best forum in which to debate these tariff rates. Uh, we need to get it out. The phrase at the time was, take the tariff out of politics. <laughs> and really, there's no way you can do so. But the idea was you want to sort of separate yeah. it from Congress. <laughs> and so the idea of delegating authority to so, the branch of the president in particular uh, had been floating around for some period of time. So the RTA, I definitely had its detractors at the time. Uh, some said that it was a, quote, fascist dictatorship in respect to tariffs. And another said that there are no shackles upon this use of extraordinary, tyrannical, dictatorial power over the life and death of the American economy. Also, there was an American tariff league that was pushing back against this. What does the pushback say about the politics of the time? Well, I think there, there's another parallel to what we see going on today um, is that uh, both parties, um, and we don't point fingers at anyone in particular, but at the time, <clears throat> these were the Republicans who were opposing this. You know, they just grope for any argument they can have uh, to uh, object to something. You know, if a Republican president had said, you know, I, I need these uh, tariff powers. In fact, uh, Hoover got some tariff powers in the Smoot-Hawley Act. Um, Republicans would have been fine with that. But the problem was not so much that they were complaining that we're delegating powers to the president. It's that uh, they knew that the president, President Roosevelt, would use the, that power to reduce tariffs. And they didn't. They cared about the outcome. Uh, so they were objecting to the outcome that tariffs would go down as a result of this delegation. Um, and that's something you know we see <clears throat> we see today when uh, some of uh, the political parties say, you know, we oppose this measure because it's going to lead, it's you know sort of unconstitutional or it's a, a bad uh, policy framework. They're really objecting to the the outcomes that they see in giving a, a certain administration certain powers. But the reason they lost is is quite so. Who well, they, did, they didn't have the votes in Congress. Uh, they were a minority party. So they could uh, scream all they wanted to, but they have no impact really on uh, how events played out. <laughs> so this American Tariff League, when did they die out? And is Trump going to bring him back? <laughs> uh, could be. <clears throat> um, you know, I still see references to them in the 1950s and maybe even the early 1960s. But uh, by that time, you know, by the 1950s and 60s, trade policy, or at least trade was not a big part of the U.S. economy. Um, you know, Japan and uh, Western Europe were sort of devastated as a result of World War II. We really didn't face a lot of import competition. And so uh, the need for an American Tariff League was pretty uh, small at that time. There are no major industries that uh, were complaining about imports. So whether they come back or not, uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, the big difference, of course, between that period in the 1930s when there was the American Tariff League that was politically, you know, pretty uh, robust. And today is that Back then, uh, businesses were not really globalized. They were national businesses. So there were foreign producers and domestic producers, and the domestic producers wanted to keep the foreign producers out. Uh, today, you know, American business is really globalized. Most m large companies are multinational. They're operating in, in many countries at the same time. They're sourcing components if they're in, in manufacturing from many different places. Uh, and so I think that we won't see a revival of the American Tariff League because most businesses today are globally integrated um, and they rely on imported components. And so they don't want the old fashioned protectionism that we uh, saw in the 1930s and before. So you're saying if I don't do it, no one will? <laughs> I think there's an opening for you. Give it a shot. Okay, that or a dissertation on um, what they were up to in the 1950s. We'll right. see. We'll see which road which road I go down. Yeah. So, um, Secretary <laughs> Hull, who was he, and how big a role did he play in changing uh, changing trade policy at the time? So, uh, Cordell Hull was Secretary of State from 1933 to 1944, and he's sort of one of the um, 
uh, people that I think most uh, kids and, and uh, students of American history don't uh, either know about or uh, appreciate his role in terms of uh, U.S. trade policy. Great character, though. You know, he comes from the middle of nowhere in Tennessee. He's this hillbilly who, like, barely went to college, ends up becoming Secretary of State during World War II. I mean, you know, rags to riches if you ever wanted one. Yeah, and he really had uh, played an outsized role in terms of uh, redirecting U.S. trade policy in the 1930s. And, you know, at the time he was made fun of, uh, it was thought that, you know, that trade policy was really not very important during the Great Depression and that this um, goal of achieving all these reciprocal trade agreements, you know, he's just not going to achieve it. The rest of the world doesn't want them. It's sort of he's wasting his time. But he, you know, was very persistent. He was very um, focused on this one goal of using the State Department to try to get uh, more economic peace and harmony through uh, peaceful trade relations. And, uh, you know, he retired or resigned as Secretary of State in 1944. He was America's longest serving Secretary of State. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1945, both for his work on the United Nations, helping to create the United Nations, as well as his work on trade policy. So he's a really big figure that's a little bit forgotten these days. But um, he really did change the course of U.S. trade policy. And the impact of his ideas really came to the fore in the 1940s and 50s after he left office with the formation of the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which we now know of as the World Trade Organization. So he really pushed for multilateral trade policies that came about uh, after he had stepped down from office. But he's a big figure in the history of U.S. trade policy. Yeah, there's a there's a sort of tragic aspect of his story as well, because he was his whole theory of the case was that trade between countries helps helps bring about peace. One of the decisions that he partially signed off to was the blockade of Japan in 1940 of of restricting them from um, being able to import import oil. And, you know, we don't need to entirely adjudicate why uh, Pearl Harbor happened, but this was certainly one of the causes of Japan's calculation that they needed to act was because of the the power that that the that the U.S. international trade had on their economy, right? And I think uh, his uh, deputy uh, uh, Dean Acheson at the time played a role in that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, he was generally considered to be a pretty weak uh, Secretary of State. Um, that's largely because uh, FDR wanted to be his own, you know, run to run foreign policy out of the White House. But uh, I still think he's a bit underrated, uh, particularly in the trade field, where he was really of, of critical importance. All right. So let's get through uh, World War II. So GATT, what is it and why does it matter? Well, uh, as we were sort of just talking about, uh, we had this uh, piece of legislation, the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act passed in 1934. It really didn't achieve much in the 1930s. You know, uh, we already had uh, sort of fascist Germany and fascist uh, Japan that didn't want to sign trade agreements. Uh, Britain had gone in for imperial preferences with Canada and its former colonies. Um, So it was a tough row to hoe for uh, Hull during the 1930s, and he really didn't achieve much. But he had this idea that, you know, uh, we should bring countries together and uh, reduce trade barriers, and uh, really didn't sort of see uh, come to fruition until uh, after World War II. That's when the U.S. really, uh, you know, was the dominant power uh, politically, uh, militarily, and economically in the world. Um, Britain was uh, much weaker. Um, and so the U.S. Uh, couldn't really dictate terms, but really could set the agenda for uh, where the world economy, uh, at least arrangements uh, relevant to the world economy, were going after World War II. And so uh, the State Department said, uh, you know, we want to have a, a big convention after the war to uh, handle international monetary arrangements. And that's what the Bretton Woods Agreement was in 1944 that set up the IMF and the World Bank. And we also want a big uh, agreement on trade. And uh, that was first set up in uh, 1947 at a conference in Geneva that set uh, out an agreement called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which sort of set the framework for post-war trade relations. The State Department actually wanted to do something even bigger uh, and create something called the ITO, the International Trade Organization. And there was a conference in Havana in 1948, but it was never approved by Congress and that, that effort failed. It would have been a great place, I'm sure great nightclubs and great music, um, but uh, the issues, of course, were political. The fact that uh, so many countries had so many divergent trade interests just really couldn't come to an agreement around the table. Whereas the nice thing about the GATT was it was basically the U.S. and Western Europe and a few other countries that really want to focus on uh, trade liberalization. Uh, and so they came up with this uh, agreement uh, for a most favored nation status and uh, other rules for trade, as well as exchanging some uh, uh, tariff reductions in the bargaining process. And so the GATT process really moved forward, whereas the uh, multilateral effort 
failed at that time. Trade or fade, one of the slogans for the time, which I think uh, you know someone should someone should bring back nowadays. <laughs> I think that was Eisenhower or someone in the Eisenhower administration. But what the, the GATT process uh, did is not just reduce tariffs all at once. Uh, there was that first agreement in 1947, but uh, there were uh, sort of a series of uh, trade negotiating rounds about every decade. So uh, there was the Kennedy round of the 1960s, which put a, a further dent into tariffs. Uh, the Tokyo round of the 1970s, which sort of ratcheted tariffs down again. And then the Uruguay round of the 1980s and 90s, which uh, uh, you know did a lot of things, but also ratcheted tariffs down. So it was a, sort of this slow process over time of uh, reducing trade barriers and trying to constrain uh, uh, trade policy around the world. All right. Let's now get to the next big piece of legislation, the Trade Act of 1974. What were the circumstances under its passing and what did it accomplish? Yeah, it did a couple of things. Um, Not as big as the RTAA in 1934, but um, first of all, it renewed the president's ability to negotiate trade agreements. um, And that's authority that has to be renewed every now and then. Um, The president just can't, uh, you know, well, the president could always negotiate, but uh, Congress uh, may not uh, like that. So, um, it was necessary for us to go into the Tokyo round uh, to have that legislation. It also introduced something called fast track, which is uh, another thing we're still living with today, uh, not, not, not just trade negotiating authority. So what fast track is, is that uh, the first trade agreements in the 1930s, and 1940s and 50s were just tariff cutting exercises that didn't need to go back to Congress to get approval. But by the time we're in the 1970s, uh, tariffs levels had come down a bit. Um, uh, quite a bit. Trade negotiations were dealing with uh, increasingly non-tariff barriers. So what are non-tariff barriers? So non-tariff barriers would be government regulations or uh, quotas or uh, things that are obstructing trade that are not strictly speaking tariffs. And if you're going to regulate those or restrict their use, that requires changes in domestic legislation. And so the problem was is that uh, if the president negotiated some agreement brought to court's Congress, Congress would, you know, just like they did with the smooth high tariff, want to put its fingers in the pie, so to speak, and to start changing this provision here and modifying that one there. And then you'd have to bring that back to the International Negotiating Forum. They might not like that. So if Congress got to sort of uh, second guess or change whatever the president had negotiated, it would be a very laborious process that just you'd never get anywhere, really. And so what uh, Congress did is said in Fast Track in the Trade uh, Act of 1974 is that if uh, you uh, bring us an agreement uh, that we've authorized you to reach, we will pledge to do two things. One is uh, just to get uh, an up or down vote in Congress in the House and the Senate and therefore change uh, domestic legislation as a result. Uh, So we won't uh, try to change the provisions per se. We'll just give it an up or down vote, but we do have that right to veto it. Um, and we'll, we'll do it within uh, a reasonable amount of time. So we just won't sit on it and let it sort of die uh, a long death. Um, and so that's what fast track is. And that's something that's still uh, an issue whenever a uh, president wants to reach a, a foreign trade agreement. So that's sort of what we're dealing with now with the uh, renegotiation of NAFTA, uh, the USMCA. It's, I think it's been formally submitted to Congress, but uh, uh, they have this uh, timetable that they have to agree to um, uh, approve it without changing any of the provisions. So I'd like to drill down pretty deep on the Reagan era because you know he he probably had the most uh, intense aggressive protectionist measures uh, we've seen in modern American history. So what drove an administration filled up with dyed-in-the-wool Republicans whose staff were uh, chock full of Milton Friedman devotees to drop some really really hard trade measures? Well, I have to remember that uh, just about every administration is divided, so it wasn't just uh, Milton Friedman devotees and, and free market advocates, but they're also business. People and business people tend to, you know, like tariffs uh, for at least on their business. And here, there's a big analogy with the Trump administration. So there's been this division uh, in the Trump administration as well, where at least early on there were there Larry Kudlow and Gary Cohn, sort of free market types that wanted free trade, and then the business people like Wilbur Ross, um, who wanted to, uh, you know, have tariffs to defend mm. American industry against uh, foreign competition. So every administration is divided between different factions. Uh, there's not there's usually not just a monolith. But what was going on in the Reagan administration is, yes, the, the president spoke uh, in favor of free trade and he s- seemed to support that. But he also um, negotiated uh, export restrictions on automobiles with Japan and imposed steel uh, voluntary restraint agreements um, and things of that sort. And th- I'd say the reason is, is that um, we had the worst recession since uh, the Great Depression in the early 1980s. Uh, as a result of the Federal Reserve under Paul Volcker tightening monetary policy to reduce the rate of inflation. 
Uh, and that recession uh, was accompanied by a very strong U.S. dollar that led to a large trade deficit. And so a lot of import competing industries were being hurt. Uh, there was a lot of unemployment at the time, both because of monetary policy and to some extent because of structural changes in manufacturing. And so it was a way of sort of using trade restraints to uh, sort of limit the damage uh, during this uh, uh, tricky time in U.S. economic history. So it's a little bit different than the Trump administration today, which is also giving the Reagan administration a run for its money in terms of the number of protectionist measures. Today, you know, uh, the U.S. economy uh, so far has been uh, pretty strong. We have uh, very low unemployment rates, but Reagan was dealing with unemployment rates over 10 percent. Intellectually, uh, he was uh, in favor of free trade, but politically he was um, flexible enough to have temporary measures. And, and most of these things did go away with time. Uh, temporary measures to try to offset some of the uh, uh, hurt caused by the uh, tight monetary policies at the time. I love how uh, you tell this story about a, a series of events which leads to enormous sugar tariffs, so high such that folks ended up bringing sugar in through Canada by means of cake mix, packets of iced tea, and then cooking them down and selling it uh, as raw sugar. And this whole rigmarole was actually profitable. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we had uh, these uh, uh, import quotas on, on sugar that drove up the, the domestic price of sugar to two or three times the world price. And so uh, cake mixes, you know, you get these imports of fake cake mixes, which are 95% <laughs> sugar. Uh, and then they just take the flour out um, once it came into the U.S. and uh, sold the sugar at the higher price. Uh, there was even a case where I think we were banning imports of Israeli frozen pizzas because the sugar content was too high and, and uh, some firms were extracting the sugar to be sold at the higher price. What this shows you too is there's a limit to trade policy in the sense that uh, you can raise tariffs on certain goods, but there's always an incentive, if not to smuggle, at least to try to get around those tariffs. There's something called tariff engineering, where you change the, the type of product that you're sending into the U.S. just to avoid the tariff. Yeah, I mean, this sort of tariff engineering, it's its going on nowadays as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, and there's just an article on uh, uh, Columbia, um, uh, the, uh, uh, company, the clothing company, and how they would adjust how many buttons or how many pockets they have on some of their shirts uh, so that uh, they, you know, the tariffs uh, would apply to one category of goods, not, uh, not another. You know, there's this big debate a couple of years ago about whether snuggy blankets, which you sometimes see advertised on TV, whether that's a garment or um, a blanket, uh, because garments and blankets uh, get different uh, tax treatment on the tariff code. And I can't remember which way, which way it was supposed to go, but the company you know, definitely wanted that uh, these were manufactured in China. They wanted them under the low tariff category. I guess the best example of tariff engineering I have in the book, or at least one of my favorites, is that we impose tariffs on imported uh, uh, motorcycles uh, during the Reagan administration in the mid-1980s. And uh, the tariffs applied to uh, motorcycles with piston displacements of 700 cc's and above, mm -hmm. uh, heavyweight motorcycles. And so uh, what Honda started doing is producing a 699 cc version. Now, the difference between a 699 cc engine and a 700 cc engine is you know, imperceptible. But just by changing that one cubic centimeter, uh, it changed the whole tariff treatment. And you avoided a 45 percent tariff uh, and were assessed at a much, much lower rate. So let's now turn to Reagan's relationship with Japan. So how did these tensions build up? Uh, the complaints you write about at the time seem pretty similar to the charges folks are lev levying today at China. Yeah, very similar to uh, what's being talked about in terms of China, um, but some big differences too. So we can go through some of them if I can remember them all. Um, so the similarities are we had a big and growing trade deficit with Japan, uh, just as we've had with uh, China, that... Um, they were exporting a lot of goods that were hurting U.S. industries, particularly automobiles, steel, semiconductors. And in the case of Japan in the 1980s, it, it, a little bit less obvious what they were in uh, the case of China, a lot of apparel and furniture and things of that sort. But certainly some manufacturing industries have been hurt as well as a result of imports from China. And uh, a view that they, they, were, they weren't fair traders in the sense that their market wasn't open for our products as uh, – as our market is for theirs. So we had a big trade deficit with Japan, just as we have a big trade deficit with uh, China. The view with Ch uh, Japan was also, you know, their formal trade barriers were low, but somehow we just can't penetrate their market. It's very difficult. And the same claim is made about uh, China that, uh, you know, their formal tariffs are low, but uh, the government sort of behind the scenes with administrative guidance or um, other mechanisms to avoid buying U.S. Uh, products, manufactured goods in particular. So a lot of this, uh, similar things also about intellectual property. It was thought at the time Japan 
you know, didn't uh, respect U.S. intellectual property and just stole some of our uh, best technology. Obviously, uh, same uh, true uh, with regard to uh, China today. But the big difference is, is that, you know, yes, the Reagan administration went after Japan and uh, tried to uh, uh, threaten them and, and, and get them to change their policies with uh, with trade sanctions. Uh, Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974 sort of gives the president the authority to do this, and that's how uh, President Trump has also gone after China. But the big difference is, is that uh, the U.S. and Japan had a very good relationship. We were both democracies. We were both largely market economies. We were both military allies. Japan relied on us quite a bit. And so Japan really wanted to accommodate the U.S. concerns as best they could under the circumstances. And so uh, there's a much more amicable amicable uh, agreement to try to do something to uh, reduce those trade tensions. Where with China, obviously, uh, they're not a democracy. They're not a military ally. Uh, we're geopolitical and geostrategic rivals to some extent. China's a rising power, although we are feared uh, Japan as a rising power back then in the 90s as well. And so the relationship is much more fraught, much more difficult. And uh, obviously, China's a much bigger economy too, the world's second uh, largest economy. Um, although I think Japan was back in the 1980s too, but it wasn't considered quite the the, the dominant uh, threat as uh, China is today. So uh, the threats and the bullying don't work as well with uh, China as they did with uh, J- Japan, which uh, wanted to reach an accommodation with the U.S. Um, and as I pointed out earlier, there are economic nationalists in the United States, but there are also a lot of economic nationalists in China too. So when the U.S. hits them with tariffs, what uh, uh, China does, which Japan never did, in the 1980s is say, we're going to counter-retaliate. We're going to impose tariffs on your goods. And that's exactly what China has done today um, uh, in terms of uh, buying soybeans uh, to buying other products as well. Uh, They've uh, increased their tariffs on U.S. products. Um, And so we're in this trade war with China in a way that we never really were with Japan because Japan never retaliated against the United States. And of course, the uh, U.S.-Japan trade conflict sort of really faded by the early and mid-1990s um, when Japan's economy sort of began to flatline a bit. And so it really remains to be seen what the end game is uh, with China, uh, because uh, they're certainly uh, experiencing slower growth in China, as you well know, uh, but whether they're ever going to really back down or whether we're going to defuse um, this conflict uh, remains to be seen. Could you talk in particular about the trade policy response to Japanese semiconductors? Sure. That was sort of a, a, a sort of a, a big issue at the time, and the concern was twofold. One is that uh, Japan. Well, let me back up just for a moment. You know, Japan had this tendency in certain uh, uh, narrow product categories to ramp up its exports very, very quickly, um, and uh, really sort of surprise and and. Uh, uh, hurt a uh, dom- big uh, U.S. domestic industry. So autos was a classic case of that, where uh, imports in the late 70s, early 80s really began to uh, uh, skyrocket from Japan. And the same was happening with semiconductors in the mid-1980s. Um, they were investing a lot in the production of DRAMs, dynamic random access memory chips, uh, sort of basic memory chips and computers, and just sort of uh, pushing the U.S. industry out of uh, that product category. In fact, a lot of people thought that the whole U.S. high-tech sector would suffer as a result and, and we wouldn't produce any semiconductors. And what happened as a result of that competition is Intel and others started producing more microprocessors and specialized chips rather than sort of the generic uh, uh, memory chips. Uh, what the Semiconductor Industry Association uh, wanted was two, two things. One, they wanted uh, Japan to s- stop what they were alleging is, was the dumping of chips on the world market. And second, um, they want to, uh, to open up Japan's market uh, to uh, U.S.-made semiconductors. And so the trade conflict in 1985, 86, 87 sort of centered around those two issues. And there was an agreement signed in 1986 where Japan agreed to uh, stop the dumping. Otherwise, the U.S. could impose these special tariffs. And there was a secret side letter to that uh, agreement where Japan agreed to uh, uh, ensure that 20% of uh, semiconductor uh, purchases in Japan would be uh, to foreign vendors. And that was secret because um, it was sort of a market share target. It wasn't saying that there wasn't some trade barrier preventing uh, Japan from importing semiconductors. Uh, but it was thought that uh, through various administrative practices, uh, the Japanese semiconductor market really wasn't open to foreign competition. And um, so they set up this market share target, which was eventually hit in the early 1990s, um, but it was the failure to hit that target that was one of the uh, rationales for the U.S. retaliation uh, for noncompliance with Japan uh, in terms of that agreement in 1987. So semiconductors was sort of a 
not really remembered as much today in terms of the trade conflict, uh, but um, it was a big issue with Japan in the late late 1980s. One, sure, one, last, sure. one last thought on that, and this is something that comes up time and time again in U.S. trade policy history, is that at any given point in time, there's going to be one issue which is considered overridingly important and, and all attention is focused on it. And yet five, as little as five years later, it can be completely off the radar screen of uh, trade policy officials. So, you know, everything's uh, on Japan and, and semiconductors in 1987. Uh, but by 1992, you know, it was basically an almost a non-issue. And that tends to happen a lot. There's a lot of this sort of these fads of uh, trade policy concerns or trade policy issues that really just die away with time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's die away with time and die away with uh, changing macroeconomic flows, right? You know, as fear of Japan's uh, recedes, as the real estate bubble bursts and the stock market bursts with it, then uh, it's not so scary anymore that uh, Japan's semiconductors may be, um, may be taking over the world. Exactly. Yep. So now let's come to NAFTA, which was almost not a priority for Clinton. But time and again, we see the influence of sort of like elite worldly policymakers. Um, uh, Lloyd Benson of your no Jack Kennedy fame ends up talking Clinton into it. So tell that story and talk a little bit about NAFTA's pass through Congress. Sure. Well, uh, trade politics, uh, one of the themes of the book is it's always partisan. There's always these uh, parties that disagree over trade policy. And so uh, generally, uh, NAFTA, which had been proposed by uh, um, uh, Mexico, uh, was supported by Republicans and George H.W. Bush and uh, more opposed by Democrats um, uh, who were concerned about the impact on, of, uh, on U.S. labor and uh, uh, things of that sort. Uh, and of course, Ross Perot, uh, who recently passed away, uh, ran for president in 1992 uh, against NAFTA. So the Democrats were generally considered to be skeptical about NAFTA, um, but it was also considered to be very important in terms of foreign policy. You know, here is a sort of an economic rapprochement with uh, Mexico, a country with whom we've had difficult relations for many, many decades. Uh, so it would be hard to sort of reject it out of hand. Clinton was a new Democrat um, who uh, supported globalization. Um, and uh, and wanted to support NAFTA, but a lot of his advisors and others were much more tepid about it. So he was a bit cagey uh, during the 1992 election campaign. Uh, but he really wanted to support it. But uh, a lot of his aides, uh, you know, early on in his administration, were sort of uh, saying, you know, this is going to divide Congress and divide your party. You really don't want to push this. You want to delay it. Um, so they did negotiate uh, two side agreements on labor and the environment to sort of make it more palatable to Democrats. But it comes, you know, as most many trade policy decisions that, you know, you have to sort of at some point make a decision. And so there was this uh, cabinet meeting or this meeting of economic officials in the Clinton administration and uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Lloyd Benston, a uh, Democrat who supported uh, uh, more trade with uh, Mexico and, and this initiative uh, for economic reasons and foreign policy reasons, banged his hand on the table, apparently, and said, you know, we got to stand up and support this. It's the right thing to do. And that sort of got everyone's attention. He had uh, was uh, held in high esteem by uh, the president and other members of the uh, in the White House. That sort of pushed the decision. Yes, we're going to back this thing, and we're trying to get it through Congress. And it was a, a, a quite a uh, a difficult thing for a Democratic president to go against uh, most Democrats and try to get it through Congress. But uh, President Clinton, to his credit, uh, did it in 1993. It was a tough fight. Uh, Benson said, "I quote." So it, it was it was it was touch and go for there at, at sorry one more time one more time so it was touch and go at some point uh, Benson uh, afterwards said I courted some of these congressmen lo- longer than I one more time okay you know it was touch and go it was touch and go Jesus it was pretty touch and go there at some point okay. It was pretty touch and go. You know, Lloyd Benson at one point said, I courted some of these congressmen longer than I courted my wife. Yeah, that gets back to that point that um, I made before that uh, uh, when you're uh, in the executive uh, branch and you're negotiating these trade agreements, uh, you're really negotiating with two parties. One is the foreign countries that you're trying to deal with, but also domestic politics in Congress. And, uh you know, it's, it's actually easy to come up with a trade agreement with Mexico. That's, that wasn't a hard negotiation. The hard part was convincing members of Congress to, to vote for it uh, because trade politics is always difficult in Congress. You know, there's going to be a lot of opponents. The people who are going to lose their jobs and the industries that are going to face foreign competition, they know that uh, and they're going to fight it tooth and nail, whereas the beneficiaries, the, the consumers or other export industries, uh, they're much more uh, diffuse, widely spread, and and not uh, really politically engaged or as active as those who are going to oppose it. 
So it took a lot of persuasion and arm twisting to get Congress to approve NAFTA. Yeah. I mean, coming back to this question of, I mean, aside from it just being a regional thing, I think at least, you know, in the um, in in the age of globalists, which we, which we can maybe start from the from the early 90s, it does seem like trade has a particular um, a grasp on the imagination and people maybe give it more weight than um, than the economics indicate. So you mentioned this uh, uh, this idea of national security being uh, a key factor in uh, American trade policymaking. Maybe you want to expand on that a little more. Sure. Well, national security has always been in the backdrop of uh, trade policy discussions going you know, right back from the very beginning. Uh, one of the rationales for early tariffs and Alexander Hamilton's famous report on manufacturers in 1792 is that we need tariffs to be economically self-sufficient in certain areas uh, and uh, so that we can fight wars and, and not depend on imported um, war material or what have you. So it's always been in there. It's, it's never been a primary uh, concern because the U.S. has never really faced big threats of uh, invasion. But, um, you know, uh, during the Cold War, after World War II, when we were, um, you know, engaged in this uh, conflict with uh, the Soviet Union, uh, there were provisions put in U.S. trade law allowing the president to restrict imports on grounds of national security if imports were impairing a, an industry that was essential or deemed essential for national security. And that's something that the Trump administration sort of resurrected in the case of steel. And uh, they've also uh, proposed it in the case of automobiles, although they haven't proposed exactly what the measures they'd like to take. So there's a, a it, it's always been a concern there. There's always been an option to uh, subordinate national security concerns, or pardon me, subordinate trade policy or open trade uh, policies to national security concerns. Uh, but there's also this question of abuse and whether it really was the case that uh, we need to limit imports of steel on national security grounds or not. Speaking of other countries being upset at U.S. Uh, trade policy, talk a little bit about the WTO. Uh, you argue that it was actually uh, Reagan throwing around uh, America's might using these Section 301 clauses uh, was actually what got the world united into creating something like the WTO in the first place. Uh, yes, and certainly uh, the dispute settlement system of the WTO, which is sort of the key part of it. Um, so... Uh, so what was happening is that, you know, in the late 1970s and in the 1980s, there was sort of this growth of voluntary export restraints. Um, there's something called the multi-fiber arrangement, uh, which is limiting trade in uh, textiles and apparel. Uh, there's a sense that the world trade rules were being sort of uh, circumvented and um, uh, countries weren't adhering to their obligations under the GATT. And so the U.S. wanted a much greater enforcement of the rules. We we're saying, you know, if we're signing these agreements and coming up with these rules, they ought to be enforced some way. And uh, there's no mechanism, really, uh, at least good mechanism in the GATT to do so, uh, at least in the administration's opinion. And so they started using Section 301 to, to address some of these things. And other countries hated this because uh, that was a case in which the U.S. would decide if some other country was uh, a fair or an unfair trader. And then the U.S. would uh, grant itself the right to impose sanctions if a country was found in violation uh, of, of some uh, problem some provision. Uh, and so basically other countries said we need these, we need a neutral uh, arbiter to determine if the trade rules are being adhered to or not. We have to take this away from the U.S. It can't be just for the U.S. to do this unilaterally. You know, the U.S. could get away with it because we're a large country and other countries are really dependent on our, our market access. But how would Costa Rica or Jamaica ever enforce its trade rights? Uh, you know, they don't have the the economic power to impose sanctions and uh, discipline other countries and threaten them uh, to get them to change their trade policies. And so uh, we need some sort of uh, independent arbitration mechanism to sort of uh, make this uh, come to be. And so <clears throat> the Europeans and others basically said, we'll create this uh, dispute settlement system in the WTO context as long as you sort of stop using Section 301. That was the implicit quid pro quo. So um, quickly, any reflections on the PNTR debate and uh, Bush's unilateralism? Um, so the PNTR debate, which is uh, permanent normalized trade relationships, uh, relationship with uh, China, um, you know, that so was controversial at the time in 1999-2000. It allowed uh, China to enter the, into the WTO. But it's recently, um, <clears throat> you know, that was a, a long time ago, but uh, Congress has, uh, or pardon me, the administration has really raised questions about whether that was a good thing or not. 
and whether we struck a hard enough deal. So there's sort of relitigating or, or bringing that back in terms of the uh, debate. The reason why is, of course, is that China has become this you know huge, large economic power that's uh, created problems for uh, uh, American industries. And uh, um, so there's obviously a big rethinking of the uh, U.S.-China relationship, and the Trump administration thinks that we've been the loser there. And uh, so PNTR was a bad, bad decision at the time. A lot of the former uh, U.S. Uh, trade reps um, have come out and defended that, saying at the time, you know, we got the best deal we could, and actually China gave up, made, uh, gave a lot of concessions. Um, but uh, you know, that's just part of the trade policy debate. Always uh, second guessing whether we got a good deal or not. Coming back very quickly to uh, to Bush's unilateralism, this idea of competitive liberalization sounds good to me. It's kind of like race to the top for trade deals. Um, so what were the issues with it that actually turned trade into a, a much more partisan issue than it was uh, pre-2000s? Yeah. So uh, the idea of competitive liberalization, which came about, uh, was a phrase used by Robert Zellick, who was uh, the trade negotiator in the uh, George W. Bush administration. The idea was that, that after the Uruguay round that created the WTO, that the multilateral uh, system wasn't doing working so well in terms of generating new trade agreements. And so to keep the system moving uh, forward uh, in terms of lowering trade barriers, we need uh, more bilateral agreements. And that will for- put pressure on other countries to uh, uh, join up. And, uh, and you'll get sort of this wave of uh, bilateral trade agreements that could uh, you know, help the multilateral system. And uh, sort of ran out of uh, steam in, by the late uh, 2000s, uh, primarily because um, uh, tra- Congress became more reluctant to uh, uh, support them. Um, it was forcing a lot of trade policy votes which uh, uh, in Congress, which most members of Congress don't like to do. The Democrats took over Congress, I believe, in 2006 or so. Uh, that put sort of a damper on uh, what the Bush administration could do. But the idea, I think, is is – there's something to it, and and you see what's going on today in terms of the European Union and Canada and Mexico. Um, even as the U.S. has stepped back uh, from trade agreements to some extent, uh, these other countries and regions are really moving forward and pushing forward with more and more trade agreements. I think there is this dynamic that's going on. As, you know, for example, we see that with the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. The U.S. pulls out of it, but uh, the other countries that are party to it uh, continue moving forward with uh, not just that trade agreement, with other trade agreements with uh, other countries as well. So I think there is this there is something to the notion of uh, competitive liberalization in Mexico. Uh, Canada, EU, and others have really pushed forward on that. So we've done plenty of uh, shows about Obama trade policy. So I think we're going to skip forward to the present day. So um, in your book, you end on an ambiguous note, unwilling to commit whether or not the uh, Trump era is going to presage a a real uh, paradigm shift uh, on the on the level of uh, the Civil War or uh, post Great Depression trade policy. Um, but in a recent piece you've written in uh, Foreign Affairs with a former China Econ Talk guest Chad Bound, you declare that even if Trump loses in 2020, quote, global trade will never be the same. So how uh, what's the right way to think about Trump's uh, current as well as potential future impact on uh, U.S. as well as global trade policy? Well, the reason why it was ambiguous in the book is because. I actually finished the book in September of 2016 and uh, sent it off to the publisher, uh, fully expecting that uh, I'd be dealing with President Hillary Clinton Clinton, and uh, trade policy would be on no one's radar screen. No one would care about the issue at all. And the book would uh, sink into uh, oblivion and uh, uh, you know, not receive any attention. Um, so I did have a chance after the election just to write in two or three pages speculating about uh, what a Trump administration might bring. So that, you know, I tried to make it as sort of, you know, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure what where to put it. I tried to you know, sort of just speculate about where the Trump administration might take trade policy, whether the rhetoric would, whether it would live up to the rhetoric or whether that was just overblown and not much would change. And I think uh, in the piece with uh, Chad that we wrote, um, sort of this two, two and a half year assessment of the Trump administration in terms of the trade policy. And I think uh, they have introduced some really uh, big changes that cannot be easily undone um, and uh, that fundamentally shift where we are in terms of trade policy. So, you know, one thing he's done is impose tariffs on imported steel. But uh, we've had steel tariffs in the past. Um, There are some exemptions to them. uh, But also, we've gotten rid of steel tariffs in the past. Uh, And so I think a new administration could say to, you know, uh, uh, repair a relationship with other countries and uh, to help out our downstream manufacturers who depend on uh, cheap uh, imported uh, inputs. Uh, we have to get rid of these steel tariffs. One can see that happening, and that sort of issue moves to the back burner. 
But the big one is China, of course. And there's where I think that what the Trump administration has done is much less reversible. By sort of uh, imposing these tariffs on imports from China, it becomes very difficult for any future president to just get rid of those easily without reaching some sort of an agreement. And it's going to be very difficult to reach an agreement with China because what the U.S. essentially wants them to do is act like a market economy and open up um, and not have the government play such a large role. And of course, that's a fundamental contradiction in terms of where the, the Communist Party is coming from and the control it wants to have over the economy. So in some sense, I, I do see a more or less uh, permanent medium-term breach uh, between the U.S. and China that won't go away uh, even with a new administration, where some of the other uh, things that, uh, that we've had with uh, you know trade friction with uh, Mexico, trade friction with, with the EU, I think a new administration can uh, – easily repair those uh, those relationships. We've gone through a lot of American history here. Any uh, suggestions for uh, budding scholars who want to take a deeper look into trade history, where they should um, where they should dig and what um, what sorts of questions you think are particularly relevant today that are worth deeper exploration? Uh, well, I think there's so much out there and so much that's uh, interesting. Uh, obviously, a lot of historical parallels can be explored. A lot of particular, uh, you can do some deep dives on uh, some particular negotiations or some particular uh, aspects of trade, both going way back to the colonial period uh, and, uh, and through uh, the years since. Um, one area I think that uh, could be uh, looked at more closely is uh, looking at the foreign archives in terms of how f- other countries um, have uh, uh, made adjustments to their trade policy, either in relation to the United States or uh, just independently. So uh, more of a, a sort of a global history of uh, trade policies. All right. After I get my, um, my my seven languages down, we'll definitely take you up on that one. Um, any other any other <laughs> right. final thoughts, Doug? Um, nope, except that, uh, you know, it is amazing how uh, there's sort of these cycles in terms of uh, how important trade policy is in terms of American economic history. And that it's sort of interesting to be uh, uh, present during this period now when trade is uh, so uh, much on the in the headlines and in the news. Um, even if the news isn't always good news. Oh, to be alive in 2019. Doug Irwin, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. You're most welcome. Thank you. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason McRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS20. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.